Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Christopher Flowers from MD Anderson Cancer Center and Dr. Cami Maddox from the Ohio State University James Cancer Center. They will be discussing their choices of several notable studies presented at the recent SOHO 2022 annual meeting on the use of BTK inhibitors in CLL and mantle cell lymphoma and the associated potential clinical implications. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled A Global Perspective on Emerging BTK Inhibitor Therapy Data for Relapsed Refractory CLL and MCL in 2022. For more information on the experts, along with a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set and expert commentaries, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. Welcome to this podcast. I'm Dr. Christopher Flowers, and I'm joined by Dr. Cami Maddox from the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. And Dr. Maddox joins us from the Ohio State University James Cancer Center. It's really our pleasure to talk to you today about some new data in the use of pirtabrutinib in the relapse setting for mantle cell lymphoma to start things off. And so, Cami, the RUIN study was a study that was presented this summer at the Pan-Pacific Lymphoma Conference and then presented again recently at the SOHO meeting in Houston. What were your thoughts on the data and what would you say are the key highlights from the study? Thanks, Dr. Flowers, for having me and happy to be here to discuss this. So just kind of briefly, the Bruin study looked at pertabrutinib. Pertabrutinib is a non-covalent or reversible BTK inhibitor. There's currently three approved BTK inhibitors for relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma that are all covalent or irreversible inhibitors. And those are all approved in the relapsed refractory setting after one or more prior therapies. So pertabrutinib is this non-covalent or reversible BTK that was evaluated in a phase one, two study, including a patient with mantle cell lymphoma. So these patients were relapsed refractory. 134 patients were included in the study, 111 available for outcome. So the majority of the patients treated with this agent had had prior BTK inhibitor therapies. And I think um, the interesting thing about this study was 51% um, responded to pertabrutinib the majority, again, which had had prior BTK inhibitors. So most of the BTK inhibitors, the B3 approved BTK inhibitors, what we see is if somebody progresses after one of those, they don't respond to another one. You can switch due to toxicity and get a response. Sometimes you see the same toxicity, sometimes you don't. I mean, I think that's exciting that we have this BTK inhibitor that binds differently and still get a response in those patients who have progressed after prior BTK. There was only a small population of patients who had not received prior BTK and that overall response rate was much higher. It was over 80%, um, but without a head-to-head comparison, that's probably pretty similar to what we see with the three approved BTK. So more, more to come on that. They saw responses across all other subgroups. So the median number of prior therapies was three in these patients, but there were some very heavily pretreated patients, patients who had prior transplant and prior cellular therapy, a small number of patients there. Looking at the toxicity, so in the phase one uh, portion, there was no DLTs. So the most common toxicities of any grade, fatigue, diarrhea, neutropenia, and contusion with only uh, fatigue occurring in 20% or more patients. 
there was, you know, a very low rate. Some of the the toxicities we get concerned about with BTK, bruising, uh, bleeding, including major hemorrhage and atrial fibrillation. So there was a small any grade hemorrhage was eight percent, and AFib a flutter only two. So it appears to be very safe. Looking at the duration of response, the medium of follow-up is short here, but for those patients who did respond, a little less than two-thirds of them were still in remission at the median follow-up of eight months. So I think we have a BTK inhibitor that binds differently, has activity in patients who have progressed from prior BTK, appears safe, and there is currently an ongoing randomized phase three trial that randomizes patients to the pertubrutinib versus investigators' choice of one of the three approved. So right now, I think this really looks like something we would use in the setting of post-BTK if it were to get get an approval. But in the future with that phase three trial, I guess we'll see, you know, is that really the future setting for this agent or is it something that could even be used prior um, to the other BTK inhibitors? Like you, I was also impressed by the the high percentage of patients who'd had a prior BTK inhibitor in this study. And you went through some of the toxicity data, uh, and I know it's not fair to do head-to-head comparisons of but in or across trials. But how would you say, in terms of the toxicity profile, how does this look compared to the uh, other BTK inhibitors, particularly the second and later generation BTK inhibitors? If you look at the second generation inhibitors, they do seem to be safer or seem to have some of the less toxicities that we were initially seeing, especially with longer follow-up of the first generation BTK inhibitor. I think overall, this still looks like it probably has an improved safety profile, including those A's of special interest. So particularly the cardiac events look like they're probably even lower than the second generation BTK inhibitors. But again, with such short follow-up, I mean, I would hesitate to strongly say that. And I I do think that um, with the randomized trial, it will show us if that's really true. And with longer follow-up, we'll see if we see more cumulative of these incidents of these side effects. Yeah. And what do we know about other mantle cell populations that are commonly difficult to treat in the relapse setting? Those patients who relapsed after stem cell transplant or patients who relapsed after CAR-T? So this actually had pretty similar activity to the population of patients and those who had relapsed after transplant or relapsed after CAR-T, but there was just such a small number of patients progressing post-CAR-T that were treated on this that I think it's hard to say. Hopefully in the future, as this data becomes a little bit more mature, we'll see a little bit more on some of the um, different risk categories of patients and outcomes based on that. Great. I'll switch gears a little bit now to talk about a, another study that was presented at the SOHO meeting, also uh, using BTK inhibitor, but in a different population. This is the GLOW study that looked at abrutinib venetoclax versus chlorambucillal obinutuzumab in previously untreated patients with CLL. And so this looks at the BTK inhibitor and venetoclax combination in a time-limited fashion. So 12 total cycles of therapy was given in that combination oral therapy uh, regimen uh, after an abrutinib lead-in. And that was compared to the regimen of chlorambucil obinutuzumab, which is an approved regimen uh, in the frontline uh, setting for patients with CLL. It took patients who fell into that older and unfit patient population, the kind of patients that you would typically think about 
chlorambucil or benetuzumab, but also excluded patients where they had known TP53 mutation or had deletion of 17P, where you might be concerned about giving chemotherapy, even a chemotherapy regimen like chlorambucil in that setting. And here, chlorambucil and benetuzumab was given for six cycles of therapy. So again, time-limited therapy. As might be suspected that this randomized trial did show superiority in the progression-free survival for the combination of uh, abrutinib venetoclax versus chlorambucil abinutuzumab with uh, 34 months of uh, follow-up that w- was a continued benefit, and that was what was shown at the, the follow-up data that were presented at the SOHO meeting. When you look at the 30-month progression-free survival comparing uh, those two studies, it was uh, almost 81% for the group that got, abin- or got uh, abrutinib and venetoclax versus a about 36% for the group that got chlorambucil abinutuzumab. There's not yet data to suggest that there is an overall survival benefit, but the, the follow-up on the study is still relatively short with two uh, progression-free survival curves that are quite distinct in the two populations. They also presented some uh, new data uh, looking uh, at undetectable minimal residual disease, and this used uh, a couple of assays that looked at uh, undetectable minimal residual disease uh, using undetectable at the level of 10 to the negative fourth CLL and 10 to the negative fifth. They looked at it in a number of different compartments, both looking in the bone marrow compartment and in the peripheral blood compartment. And you can see across the various ways of measuring a minimal residual disease uh, that the combination of abrutinib uh, venetoclax was more commonly produced undetectable minimal residual disease. One example of that is in looking at the 10 to the negative fifth, the most sensitive uh, way of looking at that uh, in the bone marrow compartment, about 41% of patients who got a brutinib venetoclax had undetectable mineral residual disease versus uh, only about 8% of patients who had the chlorambucil or benetuzumab uh, treatment. The uh, minimal residual disease rates were presented across various uh, groups uh, in, in the study. And I think, you know, these interesting show that uh, benefit that I just described really held across all the various groups that they looked at within the context of this study. The other thing that they looked at, the dynamics of uh, minimal residual disease in the post-treatment uh, phase and uh, looking at uh, what they uh, defined as sustained undetectable mineral residual disease, meaning that at repeated measures that that undetectable mineral residual disease continued over time. And that uh, rate for the root and venetoclax arm was uh, 80.4% versus 26.3% when you use the 10 to minus 5 uh, level. And so suggesting that not only are, are patients reaching deep remissions, but those deep remissions are sustained even after discontinuation of the therapy, suggesting that this is a time-limited therapy approach that can provide benefits for patients. And so I think, you know, these are really uh, quite provocative data for the use of the combination of abrutinib uh, venetoclax in the setting of CLL. This is a combination that's been looked at in other settings, uh, including uh, in mantle cell lymphoma. And Cammy, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts and how you reflect on these data in CLL and what that might hold uh, both for patients with CLL, but also for uh, patients with mantle cell, where we might think about using this kind of approach as well. Yeah, I think this is interesting for CLL. We know that BTK in the front line is a good treatment choice. We know that we can do venetoclax or benetuzumab in a time-limited therapy fashion. So I think one of the questions becomes, are these two targeted therapies better than one of those regimens alone? Um, I do think the time-limited therapy here is nice. 
because when you do get BTK in the front line, at least that's given until progression. And we know that some patients get a very long response, but that can be some cumulative toxicity and certainly cumulative costs for patients. So I don't know if you think this is something that would be used in CL versus that, or it, you know, when you're looking at it compared to this frontline treatment, or if it really still doesn't answer a question for you, if this just makes it like pick one of three. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think this is giving us new options. Uh, we'll wait to see kind of how these data mature and how it how it progresses to regulatory bodies uh, and CLL. But uh, it is nice to be able to see time limited uh, options with BTK therapy, particularly in frontline CLL, uh, where you know you have patients uh, that have sometimes uh, relatively indolent uh, disease, and to have the trade off of a relatively indolent disease that needs to be controlled by a therapy that they need to take for their the rest of their life or until they have progression sometimes is a difficult trade-off. So seeing time-limited therapy, I, I think it's exciting for me. Yeah, I think this is potentially going to be something exciting for mantle cell lymphoma. So currently, um, BTK inhibitors are approved as single agent in the second line setting. We know that they're effective in mantle cell lymphoma, but we also know that almost all patients are going to become resistant or progress on BTK therapy. So there's been a lot of effort going in to try to improve the responses and response durations from single agent BTK inhibitors. And there is currently an ongoing phase three randomized trial that looks at single agent ibrutinib versus ibrutinib plus venetoclax combination. We have to wait for the study results, obviously, but I do think that that is one of the next potential changes for us in standard of care if that, and hopefully we will see a positive study, but if that's a positive study, that combination could be very effective in relapse refractory mantle cell lymphoma. So I would say more to come on that, hopefully within the next year or so. As far as that population. Now, there is studies looking at in the frontline setting. So we've had uh, the OASIS trial looked at this combination with obinutuzumab in a population of both relapse refractory and in frontline uh, therapy for mantle cell lymphoma. The OASIS 2 is looking at the um, combination BTK, venetoclax, and CD20 in the frontline population for mantle cell lymphoma. So uh, we're not quite to where CLL is at with this combination, but um, if you think we're getting there with some data. Yeah, it sounds like exciting times and hopefully we'll start to see some of these combination regimens in mantle cell that uh, lead to time-limited BTK-based therapy uh, in that setting as well. Uh, other kinds of combinations uh, for time-limited therapy in mantle cell that you see as promising? I think while it's still early that one of the most promising therapies in mantle cell lymphoma looks like the potential for the bispecific antibodies. So while we saw small numbers, we did see some data with specifically glofitimab at ASH from last year that looked like it had very high response rates, including in patients who progressed on BTK um, and including in those patients with CB53 mutations. So again, small numbers, but I would look to hopefully see more data, especially in combination with agents. We know that uh, CAR T-cell therapy is very effective in mantle cell lymphoma and probably see more on that and maybe different products. And then we've seen a little bit too on targeting ROR1, both uh, antibody and antibody drug conjugate. That looks like a potentially effective therapy and maybe in combination with um, some of these oral inhibitors and time-limited fashion. I think all, you know, early, but again, um, looks promising and probably more to come on that. 
I guess the other data that were uh, presented a couple of times and presented again uh, at the, the SOHO meeting by my colleague, uh, Dr. Michael Wong, uh, were the data from the SHINE study that was published in the New England Journal uh, earlier this year, looking at the combination of BTK uh, therapy in the frontline setting with bendamustine rituximab uh, for older individuals, showing that adding a brutinib to BR in the frontline uh, provided benefits for those uh, patient populations. What are your thoughts about uh, the SHINE study? How does that uh, affect uh, the ways that you think people uh, will get therapy in the front line in the future? As far as the role of the treatment, we'll have to wait and see if and when we get a FDA approval for that. That study showed an improvement in progression-free survival in patients. There was no difference in overall survival. Um, some of the higher-risk populations, while they had a prolongation in PFS, the blastoid and TP53 were not statistically significant. And that was a little bit disappointing just because those high-risk patients, it would have been nice to be able to see um, a signal there. I think that that's probably, in my opinion, at least not something that's for everybody. But the reason is not because there was a lack of overall survival benefit, but mostly because of the toxicity. So the median time that patients got BTK inhibitor um, therapy was two years or just slightly over two years. And there was, while there were more deaths due to progression in the standard arm, there was more deaths due to toxicity in the um, arm with BTK inhibitor. So I wouldn't say that it's not for anyone because I do think that it can be an individual patient discussion and there are patients who could benefit from the combination. But I, I think what I find you know, potentially most promising is we will see data on this combination with second generation BTK inhibitors. And I think the question is, is improved progression-free survival, but it did come at the, the cost of toxicity. And with what's thought to be a little bit better tolerated or safer BTK inhibitor, will that give us benefit, but not at the cost of, of the toxicity? And that might be, you know, something that then I would would push more in the frontline setting. I think with this, you know, it's just hard to say, is it really that much better to give it all at, up front than to give patients the standard BR regimen, rituximab maintenance, and then when they progress, give them um, the BTK inhibitor. And of course, the trial wasn't designed that way. And so we can't answer that question, but that is the question that comes up in my mind. I completely agree with you there. I think, you know, this does create another option uh, for some patients where you think that there might be some uh, benefit in that particular patient situation uh, for giving the BTK inhibitor in the frontline setting. Uh, but uh, I think the, the common approach of uh, giving uh, bendamustine rituximab or another regimen in the frontline and then using BTK inhibitors among the options that you have in the second line uh, is still a, a very reasonable option for the majority of patients um, to, to pursue. I guess the, the other trial that I think uh, that we hopefully will see data on soon that's uh, intriguing is a triangle study uh, that uh, should be presented this year at the uh, ASH annual meeting, uh, where hopefully we'll see uh, randomized data to, to address the question about uh, whether BTK inhibitors in combination uh, with therapy in the transplant setting uh, may be pro providing uh, benefits for those patients who are higher risk uh, and uh, younger and fit enough to be able to undergo transplantation. Uh, what do you, what are your thoughts about uh, that study and uh, and those data? 
that we might see. <laughs> I have no idea what we're going to see, but I guess what I would hope that we see is that, you know, that study kind of looked at two things, right? What is the benefit of BTK inhibitor? And then what is the benefit of the BTK inhibitor with or without the transplant? So can we eliminate the transplant and do the BTK um, in induction with combination chemo and as maintenance? Um, you know, or or do it with maintenance after the transplant, or of course not at all. Um, so I think what I would like to see from that study is that you know our our ability to eliminate um, eliminate autologous stem cell transplant in some of these patients and be able to treat them with uh, combined chemoimmunotherapy and BTK inhibitor. I don't know what we'll see. I think it'll also be interesting um, probably to see the toxicity with the BTK inhibitor and the ability of patients to be able to maintain that with, um, at least in the arm where they received the BTK inhibitor. Because I think that was some of the difficulty with the SHINE study was just the number of patients who had to go off because of toxicity. So, you know, maybe in a younger population of patients that it'll the maintenance portion of that'll be easier to tolerate but stay tuned lots of opportunities for additional discussion on the results of those data once they're presented publicly and uh, folks know about them uh, and maybe more opportunities for another podcast so thanks uh, dr maddox really have enjoyed the chance to talk today about some really interesting data in both mantle cell lymphoma and dll uh, and appreciate you spending the time with me Yeah, thanks, Dr. Flowers. It's been a great discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. Flowers and Dr. Maddox. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, a global perspective on emerging BTK inhibitor therapy data for relapsed refractory CLL and MCL in 2022, and to access additional resources associated with this program from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.